recording. Welcome back to Mixed Messages, Father-Son Episodes. Jabron, back in the house. Welcome back. Hey guys, happy to be back. It's cool, I've been waiting for this one. I've been excited to talk again. Me too. Cool. So a little scenery, we're sitting here in our house and story in the stone room. Any of you guys who are on my social media obviously have some images and pictures of that scenery. We've got a fire going, Tahoe's in his little happy space kennel in the background. It's a cold winter night in Wyoming, and we're here on the microphone. I'm going to take a quick cup of coffee or drink of coffee, and we'll get started. All right, so we've covered quite a bit. I don't think we need to go back on anything in particular. I feel pretty good about the closure we've had on previous conversations. You? I think it's been quite some time. So. Yeah, hard to even remember what we said, right? Right. Yeah. So why don't we do this? Let's tee it up for the audience. And can you give us a little bit of a like a playback and timeline of what the last year has looked like for you as a human okay. since right before graduation, high school, Fort Myers? Yeah, so I think by now that's a little bit over a year. It's been a couple years now. I remember in high school, I remember it was basically you're going in the flow, doing the thing. For me, I was so done with school that I started doing online classes through the college just to not have to go to class. And so I was just getting through it. And then obviously that's the 2020 conversation. Anytime it's that senior year. The way I look back at it now is I was fortunate because I think that in bigger cities or maybe different political areas, I think most of what would have been harder on students was actually the year after or like even that second year, like maybe this last year, only because for me it was like no school for like the last months. It was like all of a sudden, it was just all this time off of school. There was no online classes. There was no forced attempt at social interaction, but like binders and your desks and like masks. And for that, I didn't do graduation walk. I think that was the major social media thing was like, oh, they don't do the graduation, but what about all the years? And I'll look back on it. I think it's both ways, right? So for a lot of people, high school is required. I can't really fully compare it, at least for me, to a certain level of achievement, though I absolutely understand for certain families and other people and where it is a really good achievement. And even historically, it's a celebration of that education. But yeah, so that wasn't really too rough on me, I don't think. And yeah, so pretty much graduated. Which was a non-event is what you're kind of saying. It was yeah. like now all of a sudden high school is over. Yeah, it was like all of a sudden no school, stay home. And then it was kind of just gradually waiting until you hear something about, it was a like a drive-through pickup, basically. And you were doing dual enrollment, and for quite a while you were taking your studies pretty seriously. You were in the Cambridge program and all that. And then your senior year, it was like, let's chill out and let yeah. me just get through my last year and yeah. go from there, right? Yeah. And then we had a moment there, and we'll continue to carry on, but then we had a moment there where you had, decided that maybe you didn't want to go to college. Can you share a little bit about what that was like for you when you were making those decisions and what was on your mind, what you thought you wanted to do instead and why? Yeah, so my perspective was, so you have so many examples of students that go to college and they fail or they struggle or they find some sort of addiction or some sort of distraction. I would wonder if a lot of that is because of not knowing what the person is in it for 
So I just remember being like, I don't know what I want to do. So maybe I don't need to go to college. Maybe I can focus on other things. Ultimately, now I understand that college is a certain level of opportunity. And I also understand that economically, it's just a way better couple years to be in initially out of high school rather than being stuck in really beginning stage jobs. And the workforce is difficult, I guess, in some ways, period. But when you don't have five years of experience in anything, that's a certain level of difficulty. So I think that education now, I can understand why it's such a good thing. But if there's not a realistic perspective of what you're in it for, what degree you're doing, or even in the idea of figuring out what you want to do, there still has to be a drive to figure out what you want to do, to be there, to be present, to at least show up to class. I wanted to do construction, but really that was only because, you know, I had a girlfriend at the time and I knew she wanted to move to the city and I felt responsible to not do the whole long distance thing. And I wasn't really planning on going to college. So my perspective was like city. So construction, decent job, food on the table. Yeah. High paying kind of thing, right? Probably the highest paying kind of gig out of school. And Yeah labor just get out there because i was also a little bit tired of all the mind stuff the book work yeah you want to get your hands dirty in a way and yeah just get out there do you think some of that also was you were because i know it was true for me was wanting to just quickly be an adult was there some of that or i guess maybe not i guess i was already starting to act a little bit more independent a little bit earlier on The way that I kind of see it is almost like when you're a kid, sometimes it's easy to think that you're more mature than you are. And I feel like I wonder if that's just something that is inherently there up until you're humbled in adulthood. So if I'm not in that adulthood and I don't know that adulthood, I'm still going to be in that mindset that I'm more mature than I am, that I'm already. And then by the time you roll through the apartment and the bills and the jobs and the college and the relationships, you're already in it. Then it's not even difference. It's just like, it's just your life now. Yeah. Yeah. So then you then pivoted. You guys decided to not move to the city and both decided to consider college at that time. Yeah. I think just because of just where things were at, I had this, I thought it was an epiphany at the moment where I was like, you know what? I'm going to go to college to learn all of the like handy jobs or not jobs, but how to farm how to be a mechanic, how to like, like my mindset was like, if things hit the fan, maybe that's what I'll go to college for. It's just to have those skills of how I can essentially live on my own and provide my own closed cycle. And so that was the original motivator. But then what I realized is, so I was really into marine biology. And part of that is, so you have these aquatic systems that are so sensitive. And so you have to learn about sustainability. And now there's probably a lot of the word sustainability out there like oh is this product sustainable is it made ethically and is it organic or there's always big broad terms but for me it was because I learned it in the marine biology standpoint it wasn't just about buying things that say sustainable it was about sustainable living and so at that point I was like there's literally like I looked through this list of careers and I'm like these all sound so boring there's really nothing else that I care about much more than that, like sustainable, what am I buying? Where does it come from? What's the ethics or the culture behind it or whatever? 
And a lot of the ways I'm describing it now are also more matured ways than maybe what I was thinking back then. Sure. Yeah. But uh, yeah, so that's where you imagine that combination of sustainable living to then maybe I can learn how to live on my own to then wait a minute. I might as well just stick to that sustainability. So then it was like, okay, well, I don't want to work in a lab. I don't want to be a marine biologist. And then I heard about aquaponics. It was fish farming that's, com- that's basically combined with plant farming. So then you're using the, the excrement of the fish to fertilize the plants. So it's supposed to be this kind of closed system, which, you know, now that I'm in plant sciences at college in Wyoming at Sheridan, now I'm understanding that aquaponics is very difficult to do at a really, really large scale. So it's not really likely to actually be very viable, particularly with agronomy, because I prefer horticulture. And the difference is so agronomy is specifically that kind of agriculture that we know we talk about and we discuss some of us of it being unsustainable, which is tractors, thousands of acres, and monocropping. So one crop, right? You have a, you basically go through this machine and you plant thousands of the same crop. You use machines to water it, to fertilize it, and then you use machines to harvest it. And there's a lot of problems with that between biodiversity, between tilling of the soil is a conversation uh, because it releases carbon that's in the soil and kind of digs things up. There's a lot of conversation on that, but it does feed a lot of, I guess, the food market probably because as of right now, there's not a lot of farmers. So horticulture science is actually just anything outside of that. Like it's anything relating to that I understand plants or production of that kind of thing. So like growing mushrooms or growing crops that aren't typically monocropped. So like even I think like raspberries could be horticulture because it's not, even if you had like large scale orchards, it's not like rice or corn, which is a lot more agronomy. Like cotton is agronomy, but some other plants that are used for clothing is horticulture. And so basically, I originally was like, okay, I can do this. I can be hands-on. I can still work with fish, marine biology. I can still do that. But now I'm actually adding this growing aspect into it, which kind of fits into my sustainable living. Like, okay, what's this all about? And just as that has grown, I've realized how important soil is. And I've realized that like soil is way, way, way more fundamentally important And my newer understanding of that is simply because the only way to give plants the nutrients that they need in an aquaponic setting for the most part, aside from the fish, is fertilizers. And that requires mining of like rocks or it requires a whole separate mining. And then I guess if you were to think of like in a lab, like where you're producing nitrogen or you're producing phosphorus or you're, it's a little disconnected. It's so additive from what you need, which is, it's very possible to do. But the issue with agronomy, if this is actually helpful in any way, is that you figure you grow a carrot, right? You take the carrot out and you ship it thousands of miles or you ship it 10 miles, you ship it 100 miles. Either way, most of the food that's produced is taken out and delivered. You're just, I guess, not a lot of the produce is decomposed into that original place. Because even if animals ate it, 
they might poop on that original farm. So typically, like in a harvesting standpoint, there's still that refertilization, but then with the sewage systems, that then is also sending out those nutrients. So one of the big problems with modern farming is because of kind of this world market and then the, I guess it'd be kind of gross to, you know, like people do compost, which is great, but it'd be kind of gross to send the sewer back into the farms. The naturally derived nutrients aren't getting recycled as much. Yeah, I can imagine that. So you're just drying out the soil, if you way from nutrients. And one of the problems with that is so for the longest time, people didn't understand microbes. You know, maybe there was a lot of research, but it wasn't a big conversation, which is that there are bacteria and fungi in the soil that work for the plants. So essentially plants create more glucose than what they need and they release it from their roots. And so these fungi and these bacteria are like, what? So they go and they eat it. And then essentially what they do is they grow and they get longer. So they grow farther than what the roots can. And then they collect the nutrients. They collect the nitrogen and the phosphorus and potassium. Those are like the big three, the MPKs. And so then they bring it to the plant. So there is a, an ecosystem there. There is a soil-based ecosystem. So yeah, so that's where my original aspect of sustainability then got into regenerative, regenerative agriculture, restoration, this idea of, you know, it is possible to bring these ecosystems back. It is absolutely possible. And part of it is so the soil right now has significantly more carbon than the atmosphere and the ocean. And so if we were to think about it and we were to look at the carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, we were to go like, okay, we know that CO2 emissions are a problem and this is causing global warming and climate change and all these issues, right? If we take it back to the idea of where it comes from, which is it's not just that it's pumped out of a factory, right? It comes from fossil fuels. Fossil fuels are literally like dinosaur or animal fossils or matter that's been broken down and it's essentially carbon. So carbon is really important molecule or element or atom, however you want to call it, of life, right? And so carbon dioxide is not the issue in and of itself. It really is only the distribution of taking it out of the soil, burning it, and then over-releasing it into the atmosphere. But the thing is plants take carbon out of the atmosphere. So if you use your patterns correctly and you use certain levels of land correctly and use certain plants, they can literally take the carbon back out of the atmosphere, put it back in the soil, and then store it. And that's where tilling is a conversation, is where these conventional farmings when they till the ground and they are constantly turning it, they're releasing the recently stored carbon. And you can kind of see this, like I saw this video and it was, it was warming in relation to like seasons. And you can see where like the summer season I think was like way hotter. And it's not just a weather thing, it's also the harvest in the summer. So you had a North Star way back then, which, you know, was aquaponic type of, was it aquaponics? That's the... Yep, aquaponics. Yeah, aquaponic. Aquaponics was the first example of job that I could actually work Yeah, that seemed similar. So it was my big opening of there is a job. Fit Something this. that would fit this, right? So maybe I should go to college for that. For that, right? Exactly. And did you do, and then before I ask the next question, but when you said, so you could 
live on your own or take care of yourself or live on your own, I think you said, did that mean live more independently from typical people, meaning almost like more off the grid or more self-sustained? Or what did you mean by living on your own? Because I don't think you really meant like living on your own like an adult, like you said. Yeah. Yeah. So that really is basically just the ability to self-sustain. That's what I thought. You know, just the ability to, if there was a cutoff, because I don't think you necessarily have to go off the grid. I mean, if that's a choice. Yeah. Yeah. And that's cool. Old language for me, old school, but. Right. But like having a little bit more of a place in your system. So one of the things I think is cool is if we had neighborhood farms, like if every neighborhood had a farm and then if there was some way of putting the neighborhood sewage at certain levels back into that neighborhood farm, I think that there would be plenty of people that would be okay harvesting like oranges or harvesting lettuce rather than flipping burgers or yeah to customers all the time. I think that there is an opportunity where if we are willing to maybe have less availability of constant products from around the world, I think local focus is something that's possible. And I guess it really it was just the kind of cool idea of just having the ability, like literally, like I wouldn't even have to do it, but having the ability to be able to live on my own and not depend on what really is a farmer that I might never meet or an economy or all the things. It's easy to romanticize that stuff. It's funny when you mention it yourself, I can relate to when I was younger, really my whole life, was there was a book that really resonated with me called Player Piano by an author, Kurt Vonnegut. And it was a future state world where it was just engineers and military and civil people and everything was taken care of them. It was like a social economic situation where it was a perfect world of socialism. But there was a hierarchy. And anyway, the book goes back to, it was his first book, which I ended up reading all of them. But, you know, he wanted to return to the farm. He wanted to return to that lifestyle, right? There's something. And so here you are in the modern world in your generation having a taste of that kind of romanticism of grow your own food and know where it comes from and have a sense of self-purpose around how to live your life in an ethical way, etc. So then just doing the timeline here. So you got out of high school, you had discovered or your kind of interest in this. Did you do any, any of those quizzes in high school that tried to prepare you for what they thought you'd be best at? Or did you not have to go through any of that? Or did you avoid it? I feel like I, I did quite a few, but I think because I, so actually being in Wyoming has helped me immensely with labor. I think one of the disconnects is you're saying from the action of what it requires to be your own farmer and be your own mechanic and all the things versus the, the beautiful image of that is simply labor. It's simply the effort. So it was like growing up, actually very fortunate, growing up really blessed and growing up with privilege. I think that a lot of my quizzes reflected that I didn't really want to do really heavy work. So a lot of mine was more therapist. And I think it really was therapist because I guess I'm good at talking (laughs) and I can understand behaviors or just, I guess I can conceptualize pretty well. There was a period where I do remember I was starting to gear my questions towards what I wanted, which would be like, do you want to work outdoors? Yes. Do you want to certain things like that? And so I started getting some responses from that. But I think the one thing is the in the academic route, 
what originally disconnected that from really being a viable spot of understanding was that I didn't want to be in the lab. I didn't want to do the bookmarks and things. And I'm glad I understood that early on because I'm actually doing like research projects and things on school and bookkeeping. The whole like data entry is just, no, it's just not me. And that's cool. It's not my role. But then back then I also, I didn't want to have to do like back hurting work. I didn't want to have to do really heavy duty stuff. And you think that's either side of really what you can do sometimes academically and ag is, is either the rancher, farmer, heavy duty work or the biologist, the science. So I had to find my own way a little bit. And then I didn't like math a lot. So then that cuts off the environmental engineering side of things as well. So I think that I guess like the test can be really good, especially if you have no idea and it can give you ideas, but it, it doesn't always reflect what you really believe in. And especially it doesn't reflect what you're willing to do that maybe isn't your comfort zone, like the hard labor, but you'd be willing to do it for a purpose. I think that maybe some of the quizzes are a bit more purpose-based, but I don't know if the ones that I took were. I think they're just trying to do the same thing you were saying, right? It's just like, let's give them something to shoot for to, just to get them right into school and send them off in a direction, even though they're probably going to change their mind and they should change their mind. This experience of college is going to help form them. And a lot of people probably have the same objective as, I don't know what I want to do yet, so why do I go do it? And not understanding that college helps that. But luckily you had at least something from starting with the aquarium and falling for the ecosystem thing. You're like, this is cool. I can work with this. Yeah, which was actually more even like ocean because it was in ocean. Florida. Yeah. So it was the artificial reefs. Even though I could tell you the life cycle of the salmon, because the way that my professor taught it was if you had a test question and you were going through the exam, it'd be question number one. What are the effects of the harmful algae blooms on the Gulf Coast? That's a heavy question. There's no multiple choice. And next to it is five. So you have to make five points basically out of your knowledge, almost like a paragraph, which would be like one point is harmful algae blooms are extensive growths of algae in a way that harms the ecosystem. One point. Second point is, you know, this happens because of runoff of nutrients, typically from farms or human interactions where by our means of throwing things away, there's levels of nitrogen or phosphorus or things that are going in the ocean and the algae eat it and eat a lot. So anyway, so I won't go through all the points, but that's how you had to learn. So you had to really understand how it worked. I really learned and I really understood it. And I think that was a huge place in it was I didn't like marine biology as much the first day. I didn't walk in there the first day of class and go, this is what I love. This is what I believe in. But it was after a year, I could really genuinely understand it. And by understanding it, that gave me confidence and gave me enjoyment in it and, and to being learn well it. well-informed and knowing that you could learn it. Exactly. And you'd be good at it. Exactly. And so like artificial reefs was that more hands-on, not so much lab, but you're creating these artificial reefs for these sometimes mollusks or crustaceans or for these marine animals to live. And so that was just that start of that. I believe fundamentally in this sustainability. I believe in buying fish that are specifically sustainably sourced. I believe in that. And I actually get this. 
but I don't like the lab stuff and I don't like as much of the textbook stuff. It's pretty exciting. Yeah. Yeah, that must have been an exciting aha moment and a momentum yeah. to kind of move you towards where you're at now. Yeah. So how much of that was showing up for you when you, then you were still in Florida, you went to USF and you had one semester there? So it was actually FSW. I mean, FSW, I mean. Yeah, no worries. So I think generally because of the way that college been was I had already started doing it. Like I said, I did, I think, one class junior year, little bit senior year. The dual enrollment thing. Exactly. Yeah. With the kind of validity of what was going on, right? So then, okay, we can't really move to New York right now. And then, which probably a solid decision, I think, back then. But anyway, so there's that validity. All love to New Yorkers. I don't mean anything bad. But <laughs> and it's also COVID. It's so a huge city. It's Come a big on. city straight out of that high school. That would have been stressful. That would have been stressful. Yeah. Yeah. So there was that perspective of like, okay, I'm literally already enrolled in the college. All I got to do is just switch it into more of an adult full-time student. And so I convinced my girlfriend at the time to also do that because she also had a similar mindset, which probably helped me in deciding that college maybe wasn't needed was because her perspective was very much like she grew up with trades. So her mindset was like, you don't really have to go to college. You can do a trade and find your own path or whatever. Yeah. And she's a brilliant and bright woman. Yeah. And that's a very popular opinion these days. Trade school over university and stuff like that. Exactly. Yeah. But I convinced her to go to college while she was there. Like, hey, we have to stay in town and I'm going to college and this might be really good and things like that, which she did really good. You both Um, moved into the dorm? Yep, we did. Yeah, so we did a little bit of time, basically online classes. I didn't get to do a lot of the aquaponics stuff because it was all general studies. And the thing is, is that entire college experience was like extended high school. It was the same pattern of basically do my homework, do semi-okay on my test grades. I guess back then I wasn't maybe as good of a person as I am now, so maybe there was occasional cheating, which sucks. But sometimes it happens, I guess, when you don't want to really work really hard, but then you also don't want to fail. And so it kind of was just that you get your homework done and you'll get a good grade, which is true. Like I, I have noticed that especially for maybe classes that aren't Harvard or things that are a lot more academically proficient, it's typically as long as you get all of your assignments done and you're able to get hundreds on them, that's a huge part of your grade. But now you're skating through again. Yeah. Yeah. So that experience was just more that skating through. And then the dorm experience was really nice, but it added to that skating because I got into the dorms and pretty early on. So I had all these scholarships and I had the support and that was able to go into the dorms and get me there. But then early on, it was like, I'm in the dorms. That's funded. Classes are funded. I got a little bit of money back. Okay. Spent the money. How am I going to eat? So then I had to get a job. Before I knew it, I was basically a produce clerk, which actually was an amazing job, but I was working like 10, 11 hour shifts. It was my first ever job where I was literally there from what felt like the morning, and then I left and the sun was down. It was like huge shifts, which is just, it's amazing that I was able to do it. But I do feel like I, that's one of the only times that I think I've ever fallen into the flow. And I think that a lot of that, I think, happens for 
a lot of people. And maybe that's part of the alcoholism or part of the things is like, there's a level where when you're really doing something for such a long period of your time and you have to do that, it's easy to click the constant awareness, click off the focus, click off the interest in other things and just kind of get to work, get home, play video games, get to class. Routine, if you will. And just... Yeah, but not the fun kind. Not like the fun right kind. now yeah. I'm busier than I was back then, but right now I'm at least actively busy. I'm actively involved. I'm actively awake. I'm actively trying to be better. You know, where back then I think the video games really just gave that excuse of like, one of the things I've wondered is when you look at a screen, you're not moving and yet you're stimulated. So if you do that for long enough, I wonder if the brain starts to almost look at life from the outside like that, looking at literally everything in front of you as if it's a screen and you're hardly moving. And then that's even easier to robot move your way through life. Powerful observation, yeah. So then you cruised through, through, had this kind of mixed modality of adult job, school, you got your woman there, you've got your like new dorm you're decorating, you're out of the house. Yeah. You had a cool roommate, if I remember, that you really were fond of? Yeah, so my first roommate was rough, but then I got moved in. My brother's old first roommate. I did. Yeah. What was rough about him, just out of curiosity? So... I think for him, it was similar to what I was talking about, where I think he had a lot of trauma. And so he was really rough with social interaction. I remember almost shortly after I got in there, any time that I overstepped or tried to be like, hey, because, you know, he was the kind of guy where he's he's just not in it. So he's leaving old bags on the counters and his room's like crazy, but then he's expanding that into the living room. And it just was, it was gross. I was not about it. But because of his trauma, confrontation to him was very hard. And he was really well known. Like he was known by like the therapists on campus and known by the leaders in the campus life and how, or just the dorm team and things. And then early on, he was like, I'm going to tell so-and-so or I'm going to, and it was like, for me, it was like my first time in the dorms. So my thought process was they know him. They've known him longer than I've known me. If he goes and says certain things, like that could genuinely ruin everything. That was where I was at was because I now I know more that adults are trained to look at both sides. But to me, it felt very one-sided. He would just say something and then it would be like, I'd get in trouble. Cohabitation. This was like your first really having to cohabitate. and Right. And I'm trying <laughs> to follow the rules because yeah. it's the first time in the dorms. Right. Exactly. You yeah. Know? Right out of the gates, you got all this conflict, which you're not really a big fan of conflict. No. Yeah. Yeah. So then you got moved to another dorm. Yes. And then, so Jonathan was the RA of the floor. And so one of the interesting things is, so it's 16 personalities is this personality test. And you brought up something like that with careers. And so that supposedly tells you on a lot of different levels of what your personality is. So Jonathan and I had the same exact personality type, except his was introverted and mine was extroverted. And so there was already that in him, he had his girlfriend, which might even been his fiance at the time, which is so cool. Like he was like this kind of, you know, I think at the time I wasn't really Christian yet. I wasn't, I didn't really fully understand, but he was, he was just like positive Christian influence, but not in a way that he didn't, 
he wasn't stereotypically Christian, right? Maybe he followed stereotypically like Christian principles, but he was a nice kind of positive human being and a really nice guy. He kept his things clean. I got this tapestry, like we designed the living room. That was actually when I finally got to do the, more of the designing that you're talking about. and That's what I remember. I was excited for you, yeah. And I was able to use his TV. He had the TV in the living room, and he had all these dishes. And so he was a lot more set up. And then there was also that kind of early on, it was like, he was like, what's your personality type? And then it was like, oh, sweet. We might be able to be like really good friends and things like that. So it was just a really good guy, it felt like. That's cool. Yeah. That's cool you had that experience. It's great that it pivoted quickly from the previous one. Right. Yeah. I do feel like I went from probably one of the rougher roommates to probably one of the like, he was an RA. He was like prime time RA on top of his stuff, been there for a little while. So kind of already settled in and set up. And do you think that stage, because it's different now, right? I mean, doesn't it feel like a lifetime apart from where you sit here today? Not a lifetime, but it feels like a lot happened in the last year. Yeah. And this is still back in Florida, everybody. And now we're sitting in Wyoming. And and that's cool for me, too, because I didn't think you would, now that you had gotten into school, there was possibilities of you going to other school, moving on to university. And for me at that time, I I was obviously elated that you were pursuing education because you knew that was something that I felt was important. Yeah. And it cut to me crying at my own house around the fire. And I would have really accepted whatever choice you made. I just felt like I had to give it my all to try to ensure that you had the best chance of life, I guess, was where my motive was. And school seemed to me to offer some of that, as well as it's just something that I didn't really have. And so you were so bright and well-educated and were so much more well-positioned to go do that than I was. And then one of my dearest friends, Sue, at the time was highly educated. And so, of course, she's coaching me in this and... I took her counsel very seriously, so all the more reason why I was really pushing hard to get you into school. But you made your own decision inevitably, and it wasn't anybody else's necessarily or anything that made you change your mind. You changed your own mind. You made your own call. But now, all of a sudden, you're in school. You're there. You're just out of high school. You really eloquently articulated that experience. What level of insecurity versus security were you operating at that time? Okay. We're all insecure, right? Yeah. Different levels, and that doesn't necessarily change, right? But you're a young man fresh out of high school, as we've talked about before, from a divorced family and what have you. Right. And obviously, you were in a really cool relationship, so there's a lot going for you. But where would you say some of like your insecurities were, or were you insecure, or whatever? Can you speak yeah. on that? Yeah. So I think there's always the human insecurities, and then the human securities, which is correlated to trauma, or experience, or interpretation, or sometimes lies, sometimes conditioning, sometimes propaganda. The way that I would put it in the specific dorm experience was again comparing to Jonathan. Jonathan, through his faith for Christ or for God, was held accountable. At that time, I didn't have anything to hold me accountable. So that means that I had no principles, essentially. Like, I could act like I did. Like, I could act like I maybe was used to say the whole spiritual thing because I got so tired. And I think a lot of people get tired of, oh, you're not Christian. Oh, you know, that you pick up the, I believe there's something because I feel like sometimes people who know that there is God, they're like, okay, maybe they're on the journey. Like they know that there's something else, right? It's not as bad maybe sometimes as like, Oh, I don't believe. Yeah, atheist versus agnostic versus, yeah. Exactly. It's easier to communicate maybe being agnostic versus atheist. 
So, you know, I kind of adopted that false idea of, oh, well, I'm maybe spiritual. I believe that there's something, but compared to where I am now, I've realized that was just BS. That was just that kind of thing that I picked up. So in reality, like, even if I could pretend to talk about, oh, I believe in love or I believe in goodness or treating people right, there was no one holding me accountable. So I wasn't principally believing and acting upon that. So I can't even act like I really did. It feels like BS. Like it feels like I would just, I could totally be like, yeah, man, love is good and being good is good. No brainer. Right, right. But there's no substance. There's no like real accountability to that. So I think that's where that lack of security comes from. No ethical core. Exactly. So which means it could be wishy-washy. Exactly. There's nothing to really, yeah, and no code. Exactly. And sustainability was one of the only ethical codes that I did get even before coming to faith with Christ. That was something that was so different. Like I had an ethical core to the point that I shifted my entire decisions of where I wanted to be school-wise, career-wise, life-wise over like probably one of the first ethical cores that I conceptualized and actualized, but I was committed to it. And so that's what makes it easier to think back on that conversation of what we know is good versus if we really grasp it or have it as an ethical code, which I wonder if you have to be held accountable to really be able to stabilize it like that. So I guess stability in that standpoint, without those ethical codes, there's that lack of. And then instability, I think, is just simply the traumas and the lies and the conditionings. Then for believers, I guess, lies of the devil or however you want to put it. But really, sometimes it's even just insecurities or just your negative thoughts. Then that kind of growing and then forming into your belief system, maybe, and then into different parts of your life. And our relationship was a little bit different back then, too. I think so. Yeah. And that's one of the blessings that I felt about this time we have now. And so we've gotten an opportunity to continually evolve our relationship past the point of you being 18 out on your own. And now it is what it is. You're grown up. And then we have to spend the next 10, 15, 20 years defining it with maybe some of those misconceptions or as we've talked about before. And, and so been a real blessing for me in that but why don't we talk about that for a minute because it is the father-son sessions right where were you at with your father at that time too and you can speak candidly of course right i think in a lot of ways looking back on it you were pretty available like you were you had moved to florida you weren't that far away but i think that there wasn't enough truth to negate all of the lies that at that time, I probably just didn't care. I probably was so conditioned of the lack of love that my dad has and then even went with it because it's like you could relate to other people like, yeah, I got daddy issues or right. I'm cool because I've got problems or whatever, which is dumb, but... Oh, it's so natural. Right? Yeah. So I think it got to that point where after a certain level, you're just like, oh, like, so what? So what if whatever. Yeah, that was my experience in that, right? Is I felt like there was a level of indifference or an almost, God, how you put it, just a facade. We kind of had a fakeness at that point. Not that I felt that for our relationship our whole life, it's particularly when you're younger and before some of that poisoning of the well, if you will. But that was hard for me for several years there to want to be closer to you and not feel that availability and not know how to overcome it. It was certainly something I didn't feel like I could talk you out of. 
And really what kind of is coming, and I admit to knowing nothing, this is all my own interpretations and my own understandings, you know, but something that's worth thinking about is core memories versus memories. I think that I've even been talking to people about this, and I wonder if this is coming up as a new language, is the fundamentality of core memories and how huge they are, those memories that we never forget and how much we hold on to those and utilize those in our actions and our relationships and our perspectives. And I guess because the last core memory we probably had was at such a young age, it was almost the facade was around the core memory in a way. And then there was no other core memories. And then you get into then we talked about the principles. There was no principle relationship. So I think that something that's interesting is sometimes we over-prioritize, again, through experience, through my own experience, is maybe sometimes there's an over-prioritization of, I said this thing, I did this thing, we had this interaction, right? That must be huge, or, oh, it didn't go as I planned, maybe I completely screwed up this relationship, or what I think in reality, like 95% of those memories never, ever overshadow the core memory, unless someone that you trust then tries to overshadow the core memory. Like I think that if you have a core memory with someone and it's good and you're like, this is our relationship, this is where it's at, it's easier to hold on to that unless someone negates it that you trust or trauma takes place. I think that really small things don't always affect what felt like big things. Because I don't think it's human nature to want to negate what's important to us. Even in that selfish nature of this is important to me, I don't want this to not be the case. It's interesting because the way I hear it more is almost like a core belief versus a core memory. Because one thing I learned from this experience with you in particular at this time, obviously your older brother Gabriel was now living with me full time. You were still at your mom's house and coming and going. But like, I learned that I cannot convince somebody, and I've already tried to do that in relationships with women and whatever, And but I couldn't convince somebody that I loved them, in this case, my son, once the core belief system exactly. was taught that they, don't. that they don't, right? Exactly. And so for my version of it, it was almost like the Instagram reel. I'm like, but here you are and biking in New York, and here you are in boats in Manhattan, here you are in Trinidad, and here we are in Tobago, and here we are in Costa Rica, and here we are at midnight swimming in a pool in our backyard in Costa Rica, and here we are surfing, and whatever. And then, and I tied all those memories in this stage where you had already established a core belief system, and they were no different than your younger years. And so if you remember, I was always like, but when I had full custody, and you were all these things, right? So. I have all these memories and we have photographs to prove them. And we talked about that where those are photographs. Are they really memories? And it's almost like what I'm hearing you say really more of is it was a core belief system that was established. And therefore every future memory that was created was created with this kind of lens exactly. of the belief system. Right. Exactly. So sure. Here I am with dad in Costa Rica, but dad doesn't love me. Exactly. It doesn't establish me as a priority. Exactly. And so that went on for many years and we, we both, learned and lost from that. And hence why we're even here sharing that with the rest of the world is some parents and children don't get over this. Right. Some fathers resent their sons for this for the rest of their life because they know they did their best or whatever. And then they'll take a copy where they didn't, which I still will and always. Right. 
but then you just can't win is what a lot of fathers say. So they're like, go on, do your own thing. I did it. I tried. You're on your own. And same with sons. They're like, he didn't change my mind. So fuck him. You know what I mean? Excuse the language. But, and so the core belief system just carries on and doesn't have any opportunity to change. Exactly. And therefore there are no new core memories that get to be created where it is genuine love. And that's one thing that I think that was exciting an exciting opportunity for me to have this extra time in my life with you and our time together was is that this is generational. And so what does this mean for your children if you have them someday? What does it mean for their children? Mm-hmm. If you continue to be a man who feels like a fatherless child, like I'm a man who's a fatherless child, what does that mean for my grandson, my granddaughter? Are they going to be living a life with this core belief system because you're hanging on to it? Maybe. And then if you're going to overcompensate it, will that go the wrong way the other way? Yeah. And so it's a controlling, controlling or, yeah, or letting them get away with too much. And now you got spoiled kids who, you know, then turn out to be jerks. You know what I mean? Like it's not necessary if it can be healed and if there can be clarity and if it can be believed, trusted. And typically that comes with consistency, but we can't, one thing I learned is you can't convince anybody to believe that you love them if they don't believe it themselves or that you care for them or that you hold them as a priority. And that's any relationship. And I think that when it comes to negativity, it's easier when you have a negative core belief, right? You're waiting for the other person to prove it. So then every time they prove it, you're taking account that. Somebody owes you money, you're maybe not as focused on all the days they're paying you back. You're focused on, he missed this month. It's that kind of human nature, right? Yeah. So I think that consistency comes in after the fact. Consistency is when there's a positive and then you're reinforcing the positive because assuming that you want to be positive in that relationship or good and you want to come across as good, right? Like I'm saying, you need that core belief for them to then take track of the goods. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then that consistency continuously compounds on it and compounds on it and then builds that core belief and then builds that relationship. So I think that at least for my case, it was the absolute unrefutable evidence against the core belief that eventually broke it and then allowed for the healing, which was that Literally in probably one of the most intense moments of my life, we went through it together. I mean, that is absolutely unrefutable. So I guess kind of one of the conversations is maybe there are, and I don't know how many of them there are, but it's like mom spaghetti, once in a lifetime opportunity. Those once in a lifetime opportunities could mean everything in a lifetime of pain and grief and negative core belief. True that, yeah. And just to kind of riff on that, it's it's funny because as a father, it was complicated for me to both acknowledge that this was happening, later understand more why it was happening when your brother and I told me, because I was living in an illusion of not thinking it was happening, that everything was all good, kind of had one of those last to know moments. But I think both trying to be a father and an example and somewhat of a disciplinarian and playing a father role while also trying to earn your respect back in that sense or whatever, or in love or trust and all those things, your heart, I should say, to earn your heart. Yeah. So it wasn't like I was paying full attention to trying to understand how to earn your heart back. It wasn't like I was, so it was a combination of me being me, which I've always chosen to be mm-hmm. and live with it, right? Because I'm not going to completely change myself because I'm a father but also trying to be my version of a good father. So I thought that meant I'm an affectionate father. 
I'm a caregiver. I truly have all these things that I stacked up as this looks like good father. And yet, like you said, with that, there wasn't those mom spaghetti moments or this. Yeah, go ahead. No, I was just going to say it wasn't being kept track of. Yeah, there wasn't an inventory being created. No, there was no checklist because the core belief had already been so fundamental to the assumption. Then that even gets into other behavior patterns and other things of assumptions and generalizing and things like that, which in some standpoints I'm even generalizing or maybe even assuming and certain levels through the experience. It's just not accounted for because for whatever reason, we like to hold on to our core beliefs because we choose that that's us. We choose that like that's a part of our experience because to negate that core belief means to negate what I believed, which means to get to negate me. Yeah, that would just totally radically change your identity. It would change that entire upbringing of deadbeat dad personality. Yeah. And then that gets into ego, Yeah, which we've talked about a lot, which is that our presence and our existence, it's negotiable as being separate from our ego, from our identity. And so that's one of the healing tricks, if that's something you want to do, is to try and break down the identity in a way that you're not taking those negates so personal. Because if you still have that identity, it is going to feel like you're negating yourself. You're like negating your own experience. You're negating what you created to be your own experience Mm -hmm. because you just so fundamentally believed it that you put it into your memories. Yeah. So then core beliefs and then memories probably also intermingle sometimes because of, as you're saying, the frame, the frame at which you're looking through it. So it's radical to have to all of a sudden completely negate everything you knew or everything you thought you knew or everything you believed in. And that's another part of that kind of Christ journey is that's one of the early on things. It's like, okay, you're reborn now, you've come to faith, so now you have to basically relearn everything and be prepared to disband all the things that you thought you knew. And that's because you were wishy-washy in this lack of core beliefs. So then I guess principles, you had core beliefs, but you had your own core beliefs, which aren't always the absolute truth of the matter, where maybe Christ allows a way to have fundamental principles that are trained and almost In some ways, I guess if you have a relationship with God, it might be ways that God gives you understanding. So then there's truth with that that's identical to each individual. But for the most part, simple principles of love one another as thyself, treat one another as you like to be treated, be held accountable for your actions, know that there's, you know, responsibility. It's not so much about judgment, like judgment is a huge part of it. But the way I've understood it now, and to go into a little bit of gospel and then to head back into kind of what we were talking about, is the way I visualize it now is that in a way of a righteous universe, right? In a way of a loving and righteous God, everyone has to be held accountable for all of their actions, right? Because someone got hurt. So you're either going to be rewarded for all the good that you did while you lived, Or you're going to have to face all of that, that hurt, the consequence of hurting someone. And that's where Jesus comes in or where Christ comes in is there's the belief that Christ literally was like, I'm going to take on 
if you're chosen, right, then it's all of the sin that you've done, all of that, basically that hurt that you caused, I'm going to pay the consequence. Pay the debt on all that. Pay the debt for everything that you did and everything that you will do. And so that's the gospel. That's the gospel. That's why it's like, if you believe in Christ, you're saved. And I understand that without core beliefs, it's weird to be like, how do I believe in Christ? How do I all of a sudden just go, I believe, and then I'm saved. And there's negotiation on really what that means or how that's fulfilled. But I think in a lot of ways, it's acknowledgement. It's just going, hey, God, I acknowledge that you did this wonderful thing. And that's part of it, is that if you did the most wonderful thing for someone else, and then they acted like you never did it, or that it didn't come from you, you know, even in our nature, it completely sours the gift. It's not a gift. So then why give it? So I guess that's where that part of the gospel comes, in my opinion, is is at least acknowledging what happened and why it happened. Yeah, that's healing. Yeah. From my perspective. Yeah, for sure. So with that being said, and holding that belief system so firmly for as long as you did, where do you feel like you missed out in your childhood? I think that the nice thing about childhood is there's a very big limit on what you can ruin as compared to adulthood. Because as a child, you're so present. You're just, you're already so still in that place that yes, there's trauma. And yes, there are probably other people who maybe grew up way too fast or pretended like they grew up way too fast. I do think that there is almost like a, you know, whether it be an emotional, spiritual, psychological, there's a fundamental difference And it's even supported society, right? You're a kid, you get to play and you get to experience and you get to smell the flowers and you get to do the things, right? So I think that because as a kid, and in a lot of ways, maybe video games didn't help with this kind of like the frame thing, a lot of it is so in the moment that things inherently aren't taken as personal, even when they act like they are. Like even if, you know, as a kid, I was like, this is like the absolutely worst thing And the traumas, if you don't let them go, will hold into your adulthood. And then, so the traumas can stay. But I guess, at least in my own experience, it feels like the seriousness isn't really as serious as maybe you can be once you're an adult and once you're in that higher awareness. And just, I do think there is a click there. And so I think, thankfully, I didn't have to hold too much of the trauma into my adulthood. It was relatively handled so quickly after becoming an adult. And part of that is probably the accountability. I think that there's a lot of grief and pain when you're accountable for something and then you mess up. When you're a kid, you're so readily forgiven or you're just, and maybe not. Maybe maybe sometimes the parent abuses or responds in a way and does not forgive. Yeah, parents can act like children. But I think that there is this belief that, at least I believe, that children just aren't held accountable in the same way. I just don't think it. I think that a child can steal unknowingly and not be held accountable to it. You're not a thief. You're a child. exactly. You made a mistake. Yeah. But once you're an adult, you know what your mistake is, the difference between right and wrong. Adam and Eve, you know the difference between good and evil. So then there's pain and grief in the reflection of knowing that you chose evil, I think, you know? You're held accountable, you know, when you messed up. Back to the question, and because I think that's some amazing color, but it doesn't quite answer. Okay. Is where, you know, as a man, you're saying in some degree, 
you're not having to go into your adult life with all kinds of grief and trauma from your childhood and the misconceptions and, and the feelings of lacking from the relationship with your father. No matter how present I was or not present, regardless, that, that belief of lack, right? You're not carrying that trauma as much into your adult life now. So that's right. one aspect. But back then, put yourself back in your head in that space. Where did you feel you were lacking back then without a father? Or did you, like you said, it's like, oh, I got a chip on my shoulder. My dad's this guy. He tries, doesn't try, whatever picture you're painting of it. But in your heart, do you remember like really how you felt and what the lack was? Yeah, so I guess that's a good question. And that really is only, I can only speak from my own experience. That's what I'm asking, um, your experience right. specifically. Yeah. I think that for a long time, I, I've never really had a best friend because I think my response was self-preservation. And I think maybe that's part of why I don't hold as much pain is because eventually my decision and a lot of decisions actually, which really leads into anxiety and depression, and then eventually disconnect from life in some ways where you become lost, is the idea of you're hurt. And then I guess you just decide, and we talked about this before, you decide that you don't want to be hurt anymore. And so you make a way for you to not be hurt anymore, but then you don't feel because being hurt is feeling as much as being loved is feeling. So I think that would be one of the things is so coming to faith and coming to Christ has allowed me to forgive and let go of a lot of that stuff. And then I also think that being not held as accountable limits the amount of regret. It's a lot easier to not look back on your childhood in a regretting standpoint. And when you say not being held accountable, you mean like for me, not calling you an asshole for feeling this way and believing this way? Or which part of the accountability are you talking about when it comes to you as the child? Or are you holding yourself accountable or not holding yourself accountable? Like okay. not judging yourself for holding these beliefs? Is exactly. that kind of what you're alluding to? Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, so when you're an adult, you're like, I'm a child, so I felt these things, I believe these things, but I'm not going to make it wrong. Exactly. Oh, on myself. Exactly. God, yeah. yeah. Exactly. Yeah, I get that. Yeah. So then, because then that limits the regret, because regret is ultimately that you feel wrong of something you did or you said or whatever, how it affected someone else. But one of the outcomes is a bit, was, at least was throughout your youth, was a little bit of emotional unavailability, is what you're saying, right? Yeah. In a sense of distancing yourself so that you won't be hurt or disappointed or have to feel too strongly. And then that represented itself in less relationships, friendships, etc. Right. I think actually, you know, that we talk about, I think something that I do still hold on to even now, probably as a part of it is, is being very outside of in the moment of life. Like I think sometimes I'm still constantly evaluating things and conceptualizing things and understanding things. Mm. And I'm so understood like I understand myself a lot more than maybe what an average person understands themselves because I'm putting in the effort to evaluate myself. But maybe some of those traumas and getting so used to having a false core belief and becoming so framed was that I maybe held on to that idea of having to have a frame. So maybe I always feel like I have to constantly understand things or frame things and then that crumbles sometimes because now I'm dealing with things that are much bigger 
And then I'm seeking truth. I'm seeking love and I'm seeking truth. So then I recognize that my frames are almost always not complete. Even when they are fundamentally based on truth, they are only a part of the complete picture of what is happening, what the journey is, and what I can understand about my surroundings. Let me try to repeat you know? that back just to see if I get it a yeah. little bit, right? Yeah. So what I heard is, and part of what I heard is, from this experience, you looked at life outside of yourself as if you were a character. I guess in so. A way. It wasn't as if you were, so instead of being in your skin as yeah, much feet yeah. soil on the ground, you know what I mean? You're evaluating your situation in a heady way. Yeah. In different ways by distant pulling yourself out of yourself. Right. In a sense. And so like in my case, I learned having gone through another 20 something, 30 years of grief and trauma that I had suppressed different than maybe what you're going to have to go through, which is what I hope for you as a person. But was that I compartmentalized insanely. And so I think if I would have been able to reconcile more of my childhood and my relationship with my father and my relationship with my childhood, I probably would not have done so much compartmentalization, which had an effect on all my relationships and particularly the relationship with myself. So in your case, when you say lens or frame, there is a little bit of a, and I, I know there's, there's all kinds of scientific words and psychology can come right in here and, and answer to this, but you also lived a little bit out of body. Yeah. You were not always in your body and not always witnessing your life first person. And therefore it allows you to both distance yourself, but also overanalyze and create right. all kinds of different things. And I think it also actually causes memories. Right. I think it also negates the creation of memories or at least sustaining of memories. Yeah. That's been the most shocking part for me as your father is the lack of memories that I get to share with you that I have of you as a person, not just you and I. And not just some conversation about reinforcing the immense amount of time and experiences we've shared together in your youth. Because I have those. And no matter what your experience is or belief in them, I get to enjoy those almost in the same way you say that, you know, your youth, you don't have to beat yourself up about certain things. In my adulthood as a father, there's certain things that I just don't have to beat myself up about. And so I don't have to live with a sense of shame or right. a grief around that side of it from my own perspective, but also because I get to have my own experience separate from yours, which right. was that little G-man was towing ho all the time. He was at every house party. He was opening the door for all my clients. He was in every office that I can imagine. He was, you were a crucial part of my life and my adult growing up as a person, not right. just my son. So I didn't lose out on that even when you were losing out on something. Got to have my version of it. Right. And I'm not even sure that I, as I look back at it now, that I would necessarily need it to be any different because I was going to be your father in my way anyway. And I liked you, even at your angriest, even at your fresh, most frustrated, most distant. But, you know, there were moments, there were pinnacle moments where I broke down on your 18th birthday and weeped and cried when I didn't get a call from you on your 18th birthday. And I had realized that it wasn't the storybook relationship that I had hoped it would be. And I wasn't sure there was anything I could do about that. Just switching both directions. There's father-son, there's son-father. Right. And I think that's often something that is so, I think a lot of fathers in the world feel they're the ones who are misunderstood. While the sons are the ones going, who the heck are you to think you're misunderstood? I'm the one who's the son here. I'm the one who's deserved a 
better father or something where fathers are like, well, you deserved a better son too. And I deserved right. a better opportunity to be acknowledged as a better father than I was. And that's what I hope is an important part of this conversation that these are kinds of conversations that can last generations. This right. tape can be here a hundred years from now. Right. And who knows what that difference that'll make from one person listening to it. And so we both get to, uh, I wouldn't ask you to shame yourself for being any less or more of a son than you were. I get to have my memories with you all through my life. But it was shocking and still a bit shocking, not in a painful way now, of how we don't share them, right? right. And you were talking about that for past the core memories that we had. And we started this first series with me asking you, what are your earliest memories? And you started the series with, I've blocked them all out. Yeah. I really don't have hardly any. Yeah, Most of my memories are from some pictures. And I thought originally <laughs> in the first episode, I thought that was technology. I thought that was all technology based. And I don't think the technology helps it because I think the technology helps the disconnect. But now I'm understanding it is actually the disconnect itself and that we can choose that without any kind of other interference which is almost the disconnect from ourselves. It's almost like, to your point, I don't remember how my hands felt this morning. I don't remember. Disassociation. That is the word I was looking for. Yeah. That would be the psychology word. As a part of this lacking, you disassociated. And like you said, when you disassociate, that leads to more depression, isolation. And it also, the issue with disassociation that I'm also understanding is so, it ties so into ego and identity because then it's the premise of your living into your identity and not as much into your being. Id versus being. And so fundamentally, if you create your identity on false beliefs, again, going into the difference between core beliefs and principles, is that then you're living into this lie. And then it's just like, it's just kind of a rough pattern. It gets worse as you age if you don't address it early and you start to not know when you're disassociating anymore because you've gotten so accustomed to it. Then it gets to the point where you know, what if our entire culture is disassociated? <laughs> it's a great point. I mean, our entire culture is so disassociated into thinking that we're like apes and... Yeah, worm food. That's my favorite one these days. Yeah. We're just worm food. Yeah. I wonder if then that's where like scientifically it's like the idea that I guess you're only your identity versus the spirituality of, no, if you meditate or you do certain things, you'll find that you're more than... That identity is, I feel like this breaking that for me a little bit of it doesn't feel as much religion versus science as much as like, I understand where, you know, we might have just gone so disassociated. So you think about math, right? Math is a language. And in a lot of ways, there's probably truth behind it. But if one plus one equals two, and two plus two equals four, and you go continuously based off of those calculations then of course you can come up with completely random theories that fit the original calculations. I mean, we're smarter than that. We're very intelligent. So it makes sense to me that we can think of things to fit the box of the principle that we created that unrefutably one plus one equals two. And then when you get to that, it means that the scientific research, the mathematical, you know, this is what's real. This is the evidence of everything that we believe in is a language because as soon as you go one plus one actually equals three, it's a completely different language. 
So then I wonder if we got so disconnected and disassociated that we're just now trying to just add to this already created formula. Yeah, no, that's awesome. We should carry that one on. Yeah, because that's, I'm glad you painted that out. And it's, that's a whole other conversation yeah. based on what we're just coming up with our, on our own about disassociation. Because yeah, and we could go off on that, but let's keep it personal You're for right. our audience right. right now. Okay. So then with disassociation and in general memory, I think it's really cool that through this process, we, like you said, we started with a conversation that was, hey, I don't have all these memories, probably video game, society, whatever. And through the process of deeper personal discussion, we have continually unfolded greater awareness as to our living and who we are and what our experience is together and individually. And those are a lot of the nuggets that I try to get out of every conversation on Mixed Messages, but that's another reason why I was hopeful in this series and that I thought it was a worthwhile series for a father and son to have the same conversations I aim to have with anybody else on the planet to help unfold opportunity for us to be loved and love each other more without the mixed messages. And wouldn't you say that we're a perfect example of some pretty complicated mixed messages that were introduced as a father and son that have created that level of distancing all throughout our life based on these belief systems. And if you remove those mixed messages and get to the core truth, there is more love to be experienced there. And hashtag truth is love. Hashtag truth is love. Yeah. Yeah. And so this is truth that we're sharing with each other at the moment. And it's our own truths. And it takes courage to sit down and have any kind of truthful conversation with anyone, particularly if either one of us are villainizing the other person or have a lesser image of each other. And so that's why a lot of fathers probably aren't really quite willing to have this conversation with their children because they really just can't handle the gut punch. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, it, and to yeah. your point, it really messes with their identity of themselves. And so you don't call it identity crisis because the identity is the absolute fact. It's an identity crisis because the identity is actually factually incorrect. You've created this identity that actually isn't potentially real. And so much like where you were saying like science versus whatever, or religion versus faith, what have you, I still go back to this very simple of soul versus ego, brain versus heart. And to me, and that's take faith out of it for anybody else. And back to your, have we disassociated so much that we ultimately as humanity are, let's say 50% or whatever huge large amount of humanity has now come to a level of disassociation with their experience on earth that they do not believe they have a soul, that they are just a person, this person, this name, this identity, right. this character, this personality, and that personality is what it is. And it's that there's nothing more to it. And yet, these personalities, we have made them up. We have painted in this character. That's what I love about Jim Carrey so much, about what he's really, with him coming out of, with what he's bringing to the world, is that character is real. It wasn't real for me. I got to be Jim Carrey, and it was a fun part to play for a long time, but it really, as I got to be more, go inward and understand myself more and recognize that I have a soul and that we all have this soul, that I made up that character and most of my suffering exists in the character that I made up. And you can be wealthy, you can be all these different things, and yet most all of our suffering comes from our ego right. and our self-proclaimed identity. 
And are we really that person? I think you've been seeing, that's what I've been really working through on my own, through Bars Closed, and my, through my faith with Truthsayer, but on Bars Closed podcast, is deconstructing my childhood to understand where this character of Heath came from and how much of that character is my true nature. Wow. And this goes back to when we talk about you being Michael or Gibran or Gigi. Right. How much of this Michael character or this Gibran character is Gigi character? Because I, when you were little and young, I pulled you out of the womb. I saw you from the very first breath. And so then I got to see you develop, and I have memories of that. So I have a recollection of you and your nature long before you had actually had a time to establish your character or your identity. And then I've lived and gotten to know you and grown with you and fathered you and also been your, your other character. And I guess this is probably why now when I look back on certain beliefs, right? Like I said, that I could say that I believe in love or I believe in whatever, like I was talking about principles you know, that probably explains why so much of it feels like BS is because it was BS from the start. So like if I'm not being real with myself or being truthful with myself or being in my most authentic self, how am I going to actually be authentic in anything else that I'm doing? It's been my problem my whole life. There's, there's aspects that bleed through that is ourselves. So then it's if you don't get to your authentic self, do you really even believe in anything? Exactly. Can you even know what you believe in? Right. Or are you just trying to believe in enough to give you enough external value that you're getting your value from the external? Right. So you're going to be wavering and your beliefs are going to be motivated by external favoritism. One article one way and an article the other way. And I guess that's part of that kind of growth. And it is nice that there is a sense of you get to grow and you get to learn new knowledge and make new evaluations. But I think that it is weird to think that when you're disassociated, that there is no real core, I guess, yeah. because you're not living into your core. Exactly. And I think that's really what we've pulled from this one is both what being principled looks like, but also just generally coming to the very real conclusion that authenticity is what our base is really as a human meant to be. And some people may spend their entire life not knowing who they authentically are. Some people may spend their entire life unraveling all the things that make them inauthentic. Some people try to escape the fact that they know that they are not living an authentic life and it pains them so that they spend the rest of their lives in drugs and alcohol and anything else to just to band-aid the fact that they can't live in their authentic self, that they can't remember when they were that authentic self. Most often, I'm seeing with a lot of friends out there, through social media and stuff, you are coming to these really big conclusions of, holy moly, this thing that happened to me at five made me stop painting and made me stop doing piano and made me stop being the person that I remember myself being. And now I've spent my entire life being this other person, albeit a rock star, being a businesswoman, being a businessman, being a sexual creature, being all these things that are, I've gotten lots of external validation, but it wasn't that. All because I guess, because that authenticity didn't get validated. It didn't get validated. In many ways, it got shut down. Exactly. It got scared into a cave and hasn't been able to come out and play for decades. And what can we really offer anybody? What can we even promise anybody if it isn't our authentic self? You can't. I don't think you can. And then how do you hold yourself accountable to any level of principle if you aren't being yourself? 
if you're putting on a mask every single day, being somebody that you told yourself you're going to be because it protects you more. It keeps you safe. And a lot of that came from, in all fairness, mixed messages, from being scared, from somebody making a, a bad decision with your feelings, from you learning as a young child that the world isn't a safe place anymore because the adults in it don't, aren't making it so. And then you carry those beliefs and feelings and resentments into your entire adult life and into everything you do and into all your relationships. Heavy. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's a lot. We've been on for an hour. Every time I think we do this, I think to myself, oh, this might be the last one. I think there's, we always have more to talk about, which is fun. And you and I talk a lot, I think, and share a lot. Why don't we do this just as a cap, because we could go all night, but I'm going to do the same for you. But what's it like being the son of this character, Heath Burr? And then to that, do you see or feel at this point, this is not, no judgment, no nothing, but... Is there an extension now more so that we've gotten closer of kind of the soul of me as a human and some of my own identity, death? But generally, you're Heath Burr's son. Your father is this guy named Heath Burr. Can you paint for us what the picture of that character is to you now without maybe all the baggage or with the baggage or all of it? I don't think anybody else actually knows Heath Burr the way that Gabriel and I or some maybe exclusive people know the modern Heath Burr, I think is one side. So I think that thankfully there's not the same sense of, I'm not even on social media, right? And not a lot of people actually ask about Heath Burr. I mean, we're in Wyoming where it's a different crew from what we grew up with. So I'm hardly ever in that situation with someone who knows Heath Burr. So there's that mysticism or that kind of, we've talked about it before, of mystery right, is that Heath Burr is very mysterious. But from my own perspective, accountable, I think, like the modern Heath Burr is significantly more accountable. As I think the thing that I rely on is that I know that the modern Heath Burr, as I read the Bible and I'm learning and I'm growing, and I think a lot of my reliance on religion was part of my disassociation because I was trying to create the frame of Christ because I felt like I needed a frame. And so I was trying so hard. And that's ultimately why it kept crashing is because it was like, I could never truthfully completely understand through the limitations of maybe my own self or through even just the word, I could not conceptualize God. I can't frame the experience. I can't frame the Christian experience, but I guess I got into Christianity so much more because it was a lot easier, because it was very Jesus and Christ and here are laws and here are principles. And then so I started fundamentally trying to follow laws. And actually that's Judaism. That's not Christianity. That's Judaism. Yeah. Christ fulfilled the law so that by loving one another as thyself and by treating others how we want to be treated, as he talks about it, that basically fulfills the law of the prophets. And like, that's the gist of all of it, apparently. And I think that the law, you know, as I'm understanding in this moment or what feels right is that is the ultimate book of accountability. I think that God's law is that ultimate level of, as I'm saying, where we need that accountability. We need that level of accountability between right and wrong 
is that is the baseline of where we're held accountable. But it's built to fail. It's built for us to miss the mark. It would be amazing if we could fulfill the law and be perfect and be completely righteous, but we don't. I'm drifting with you because I'm yeah, trying sorry. to keep this you're personalized right, you're and you're, you're right, going into theology. You're right, yeah, because you're right, you're right. I'm going to do the same for you. Okay, but, okay. And I'm not fishing. I'm just saying that I respect what you're saying because you're wrapping around some accountability, but let's keep it personal for the show. Okay. I guess is so Christianity is where I've chosen to framework. But Heath Burr, I trust as someone of God who is not completely in that framework. And yet I trust Heath Burr to be accountable. So that's the modern aspect of it is it's my dad, but it's also the only kind of influence I have on the spiritual journey with Christ that is not necessarily contradictory, but different from what I've tried to fit into what I guess I tried to make my belief systems or understand as the walk for God or the walk for Christ. The modern Heath Burr has a level that is not so fundamentally frameworked like I try to do it, possibly because of his ego death. And so it, it keeps me from completely falling into the trap of fully disassociating into my own conceptualized Christianity because I believe in Heath Burr's relationship with God. Well, let's leave it at that, all right? Okay. That's solid. So my version of Gibran Burr is, and we've talked about this even, warrior, feeler, your brother's, the, what's the, the word? Seer. seer, right? Is, you know, I really do see you and have an experience with you as just like a very approachable, feeling human being and with a high emotional intelligence who means well and has beautiful heart that has an opportunity to do great things in the world and that your journey luckily has just begun as an adult. But you know, the person that I've known since you were able to smile and laugh and giggle and dance on while you were crawling in between into now is somebody who has an, an extraordinary ability to be self-expressed, who seems incredibly forgiving, and but also now struggles to be fully expressed, particularly in creating the framework, right? To dance out loud like nobody's watching. And so, but ultimately the person who I operate with day to day is somebody I love speaking with, always feel like there's plenty of material to cover. And ultimately I see you as a very trustworthy, noble, human being. So that's where it's at for me right now. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, we're going to wrap this show. I think I feel tremendously grateful to have you in my life. I love you as a human. I love you as my son and proud to be your father. Thank you, dad. Yeah. I love you too. I I'm feeling like slightly disassociated. <laughs> you, like, it's I'm, okay. you know, that's natural, but I do try and show it a lot with actions and stuff. You and, surely do. You go out of your you way know, to do that. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm glad you're here too. And I realized, I think it's like a mentor. I think that you're more of a dad figure in my life than you've ever been. I guess is what I was really trying to get to. Yeah. That's, you know, you don't have to backpedal in an event. And yeah. I'm sure the audience will be able to hear it in their own way. Yeah. So this I know. I, that was for me. That was for you. Yeah. <laughs> okay. All right. Mixed messages. Mixed messages. Mixed messages. Mixed messages.
Mix messages, 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 messages.